back to another episode of the Touch Points podcast. This is the third episode in a seven-episode series titled Right Answers for Wrong Ideas. The aim of this series is to provide biblical direction and wisdom for where to go and how to answer those who disagree with the truth of God's Word. And in this episode, we will focus on the biblical response to the worldview of Jehovah's Witnesses, which we will be sure to encounter in our gospel conversations and the places and circumstances God has put us as His ambassadors. Let's first take a look together at what separates Orthodox Christianity from the theology and doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses so that we can assemble some areas of focus that need to be discussed and addressed in our gospel conversations with them. Definitely the most upfront element of a Jehovah's Witnesses doctrine that contradicts Orthodox Christianity is the sacredness and exclusivity placed on the name Jehovah by Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that Jehovah is the only proper way to refer to God and that Jehovah is his actual name. Using the terms God or Lord to refer to him in his person are viewed as insufficient and often inappropriate by Jehovah's Witnesses. To refer to God correctly and personally, Jehovah must be used according to their doctrine. And so in your conversations, this subject will most likely come up to you as you talk about the gospel and the nature of God but try not to get taken into the weeds on the subject as it can easily distract from the central focus of the gospel conversation with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Another interesting fact is that Jehovah's Witnesses have their own specialized version of the Bible. Uh, This Bible translation is sponsored by their chief organization called the Watchtower, uh, which has been written, adapted, and approved by their own anonymous committee, and it's referred to as the New World Translation. A key point to remember is that this translation reflects the beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, with specific inclusions, subtractions, edits, and alterations to make the text reflect their doctrine. If they read verses on God, Christ, salvation, eternal punishment, etc., it will most likely sound different than the wording in our Bibles. Uh, The New World Translation is not faithful to the original language of Scripture, but it's faithful to the agenda of the Jehovah's Witnesses doctrine. So just a really critical point to keep in mind. And by far the most significant area of difference between the Orthodox Christian and the doctrine of Jehovah's Witnesses is the doctrine of the Trinity. To Jehovah's Witnesses, only one person exists who can be referred to as fully divine, which would be Jehovah. Jesus was the first created being in the universe and the most beloved creation of God. Jesus is subordinate to God, not equal or sharing the same essence of deity. But only Jehovah alone should be worshipped and viewed as having deity. Jesus instead exists as a lower class entity to God. Now, in regards to the Holy Spirit, the New World Translation refers to him every time with the lowercase letters intentionally, because according to Jehovah's Witnesses' doctrine, the Holy Spirit is not a person with personality, but the impersonal extension of Jehovah's force at work in the world. And so to Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is not God, but created, and the Holy Spirit is not God and not a person, but the force of God in the world. Eschatologically, Jehovah's Witnesses have historically and doctrinally differed greatly from Orthodox Christianity. From the beginning of Jehovah's Witnesses theology in the late 19th century, Eschatology has been the forefront of their distinct theology. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that several significant eschatological events have occurred between 1874 and 1918, including the spiritual arrival of Jesus, Satan being cast down from heaven, 
uh, the 144,000 anointed class being received into heaven with God. As Jehovah's Witnesses believe that an, an elite class of 144,000, uh, which is an interpretation of Revol- Revelation 7, that only these followers of Jehovah will be the only ones to live with him forever in heaven. All other followers of Jehovah will only live with him on in paradise, meaning that they will exist with him in a perfect recreated world here on earth. Another interesting fact is that all of those who do not follow Jehovah, their destiny is not one of eternally being punished for their sin, being condemned to suffer the consequences of their sin for eternity, but instead they will experience a final annihilation of existence, which means Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in a conscious eternal judgment for those who died in sin. So with all of these general areas of disagreement between Orthodox biblical doctrine and Jehovah Witness doctrine, where should we be focusing our, in our gospel conversations? With our focus on the gospel, we should lead and guide the conversation to be dominated by any areas that directly stand against the truth of the gospel and its content, which means that our key area of focus should be on the deity of Christ, as this doctrine heavily influences the nature and impact of the gospel more than any other element of a disagreement between Orthodox doctrine and Jehovah's Witnesses doctrine. And so in our gospel conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses, where should we go in God's word and what should we focus on explaining? To start, we need to make it clear that it is significant on how we view Jesus in our application and understanding and in the meaning of salvation. We have to make it clear that the significance of viewing Jesus of God not as some lower-level created being or subordinate person in quality to God, that that is not congruent or in harmony with the salvation of Scripture. Consider two verses in 1 John. 1 John 4.15, which says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And take a look at 1 John 2.23, which says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. These two verses establish something obvious in the gospel accounts, particularly in John's gospel. Knowing Jesus correctly is imperative to having a correct relationship with God the Father. Those who confess the truth of Jesus' nature has God in them and them in God, which refers to our salvific relationship with God. We see this in 1 John 4.15. And to deny and reject the nature of Jesus as presented in Scripture means to deny and reject knowing the Father. Knowing the nature of Jesus has been made essential by the Father in order to know him as well. Thus, knowing Christ truthfully has major implications in knowing God truthfully and having a relationship with him. And so getting Jesus right matters in knowing God. So we must have Jesus right in order to know God right. And so how does scripture present Jesus as a lower created being according to the Jehovah's Witnesses theology or as an equal co-person, co-eternal member of the Godhead according to Christian orthodoxy? And so right here is where we as Christians must know our Bibles and how to explain the truth from our Bibles. 
We need to take them to passages, examine them, relay the information to them, and explain them to them word by word so that it might be crystal clear, emphatic, and indisputable. And we also have to remember this, that the Jehovah's Witnesses will look up the same verses we're quoting to them in their Bibles, but their version has adapted to accommodate their doctrine of Jesus' nature. So be prepared for them to disagree according to their Bibles because of the different wording. And so let's look at four key passages you can use in gospel conversations on the topic of Christ's deity. Let's start in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Here we see Jesus as the word, which is confirmed later in verses 14 through 16 of John chapter 1. We see that Jesus existed in the beginning before Genesis 1-1. He existed alongside God the Father, and he existed in that time before the beginning as God along with the Father as co-equal. And as God, Jesus created all things, which makes Jesus the source of all existence and being in the universe. And these statements provided by the Apostle John are precise and simple in definitively identifying Jesus as God. However, in attempts of thwarting uh, this very simple and plain um, statement of Christ's deity, uh, the New World Translation translates the end of John 1.1 as the word was a God with a lowercase g. This is an attempt to present Jesus not as the God, but as a divine creation of God. However, this translation has two major problems. First, um, the Greek doesn't at all indicate or suggest uh, that the indefinite article A in English should be placed there for proper translation. Uh, Second, placing an A before God or saying a God only creates further problems with the rest of the Bible where God is stated as being one clearly, such as in Deuteronomy chapter 6 or in Isaiah chapter 40 through chapter 43. And so we can see from John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 that objectively he is identified as existing with God and being God. Next we turn to the Pauline epistles starting in Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 through 17 we read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Moving a couple verses later, we see in Colossians 2.9, For in him all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Similarly to John 1, we see Christ described in terms of being the creator of everything at the beginning, but also being the sustaining force behind everything holding together. Jesus preceded all things and keeps all things together by the power of his being. One key word that you ensure you define when using this verse is firstborn, uh, which isn't a reference to physical birth, as I'm sure a Jehovah's Witness will try to point out. Uh, but the position of leadership that Jesus has over all things. It has the similar sense 
of firstborn from the dead, which is a verse later in Colossians 1.18, since Jesus was the first to be resurrected from the dead and not die again and ascertain a resurrected body. And it has a similar sense of meaning in Romans 8.28, where it reads that Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren, which means that Jesus is the preeminent authority and head of all believers. And then in Colossians 2.9, we read that that in Christ, all of the fullness or the full measure of deity dwells, which is a reference to divinity and Godhead. And all of this resides in his physical body. The New World Translation has again tempered with this verse to read in a different order to suggest a different picture of Christ's divinity. But the point is clear. The complete essence of God dwelled in the physical flesh in the person of Jesus. Next, we look at Titus, where Paul encourages his audience to look to the appearing of Jesus, and he gives a very definitive statement on Christ's deity in Titus 2.13, which says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. There's only one article before God and Savior, which means that these two titles are tied together and in reference to the same person, which is Christ Jesus. And so this is a direct reference to Jesus as the great God and Savior, a very clear declaration of Christ's deity. But however, again, the New World Translation changes the wording in this verse to reflect their own doctrine, that they separate these two descriptions, the first referencing referencing Jehovah and the second only referencing Jesus, when textually it's objective that Jesus is being referenced through both the descriptions as the great God and as Savior. And finally, let's look at a comparison in Revelation. In Revelation 1.8, we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We see that the Lord God, the Almighty, refers to himself as the Alpha and Omega, which are the first and the last letters of the Koine Greek alphabet. And this statement emphasizes that God being the first before all and the last of all things, meaning the end of all things. And at the end of Revelation, we read an identical self-description, but this time given by Jesus speaking of himself in Revelation 22, 12 through 13, saying, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every person according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And later in verse 16, he identifies himself as the speaker. And so Jesus refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, just like the Father did in Revelation 1a. The eternality and divinity of Jesus is identical to that of the Father. And this comparison is unavoidable biblical textual proof of the shared divine essence between the Father and the Son. And so to conclude on this subject, keep the person of Christ the focus as you walk through the gospel with Jehovah's Witnesses. Christ as God rests as a cornerstone of the gospel that has been defended and beloved by the church through many, many ages. Thanks for tuning into this episode. Uh, The next episode in this series, we will be focusing on the biblical answer to Mormonism. Grace and peace.